So, David, um, there's been a lot of coverage of the uh, different care models related to federal efforts to advance American kidney health. Uh, I was wondering if we could just spend a little bit of time discussing those and understand the difference between the mandatory model and the voluntary model. Oh, absolutely, Todd. It's one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> I know it is. Um, and uh, the mandatory model, of course, is the ESRD treatment choices, or ETC. And then the voluntary models, the kidney care choices, or KCC. Um, why don't we start with um, the kidney care first? Um, so is kidney care first? Help us explain where that fits in terms of the mandatory model versus the voluntary model. Sure, I will. And I'm going to invite you to police me, Todd, because this this uh, topic is one that I can get so excited and go so deep into the weeds, um, and I don't want to do that. Um, so feel free to interrupt me and say, whoa, let's just back up here a minute. Um, but I'll go ahead and get started on status for that, because the um, the the voluntary model, which is the kidney care choices model, has four different payment routes in it. The one that most people probably listening to this uh, uh, podcast would be most interested in is the one that's called Kidney Care First, the KCF model, uh, or KCF pathway within that, because that one is only for nephrologists. It is completely for nephrologists. No one else, not facilities, not transplant centers, just nephrologists. David, just to interrupt you, and I have a feeling this is going to be one of these discussions where we're talking over each other a little bit, kind of like a Robert Altman film. Um, do you... Are other health professionals eligible, either general internists or nurses, or is it just for nephrologists? Well, the nurse could be part of the, the nephrology practice. Uh, so in that capacity, you could have it. But no, you would not have internists. Okay, so that that model uh, or that pathway within that model, that started earlier this summer um, when uh, the government, uh, CMS in particular, Centers for Medicaid and Medicaid Services, released the acceptance packages. Uh, of those who had applied, because we had to apply for it, it's a voluntary model. Um, they are in the period that they call the implementation period right now. It goes from October 1 until March 31st of 2021, with the idea that the actual beginning date will be April 1, 2021. Um, there's a lot of things being worked out right now, and it's, it's making a lot of nephrologists who are in it think very hard and deep about whether this is going to work for them or not. And that's actually something that I think is very a very good thing to do because I think you really do need to consider whether this is right for you. And uh, it's, it's a, it is a complicated structure, but it does incentivize going upstream with CKD, and it does incentivize, um, very heavily incentivizes preemptive transplant. So one of the goals of the federal policy around advancing American kidney health is increasing awareness of kidney disease is, and then in addition to increasing awareness, increasing the amount of screening, identifying people earlier, and then treating them earlier. And as you said, that's part of what the goal is here is, is sort of using the, the payment system to, to drive that change, which is obviously very complicated. Help us sort of understand what this means um, specifically for the millions of people with kidney disease in the United States. Well, it is the first time that the payment system has really been, I mean, obviously the payment system always paid for, you know, an evaluation of the patient, uh, for CKD. Um, but it's the first time they've, they've really tried to make that happen in, in a proactive payment way 
before you ended up with kidney failure and then ended up with dialysis or if you were lucky enough to have transplant right away. Um, so what they're basically saying is, is that, you know, we want you to work with primary care and you are going to have to work with primary care. They're not in the model, but you're going to have to work strongly with them and to identify patients who, who are, are possibly having issues that they're not even aware of and also to begin to treat them as kind of, you know, as, I don't want to say as aggressively as you can because in some cases it does not make sense to be aggressive, but in, in terms of proactively having a conversation about a lot of things uh, between you and the patient about ways to slow down progression of kidney disease and then, uh, you know, where you, where you would go with that once you were kind of more informed if you could be earlier on than those individuals who just show up at the emergency room and they are very sick and they're not sure why. That's something that everyone wants to totally see what we can do to get around that and not have that happen. So this choice and this stuff also brings in the mandatory model, though, because I think that's another one, which is that's the SRD treatment choices one. And I think for that one is just beginning to get started. Uh, that one, I think, also has a lot of implications for choice and for um, really trying to reach out in advance. So so before we move to that, you use the term CKD. And if I shift from CKD to kidney diseases and think about everything that's happening right now with diabetic kidney disease in terms of um, therapies coming to market. Is that a potential example? You know, ASN is supporting the Diabetic um, Kidney Disease Collaborative. Where we're really trying to engage nephrologists, primary care physicians, endocrinologists, cardiologists, and, and try to identify the patient population as early as possible. And then Really encourage um, the use of, of these new therapies, both to to you know slow, ideally slow, the progression of diabetic kidney disease and improve care. How does that sort of interdigitate with uh, the kidney care first model? Tata, that is just really so important because I I think that the truth of the matter is is that the only way we're really going to make a major change here is that that you go across all the, the schematic of all those different things. Because it's the individual that's being affected. It's not one disease state or defining it or putting it over here. That's one of the unfortunate parts about dealing with, with uh, federal policy payment is they're not always good at nuancing that. So you're right. I mean, when you look at diabetes and then you look at, um, you know, kidney disease and the need to really like work across those, those lines between the primary care, the nephrologist and the endocrinologist. Are really key. Um, it's difficult to get sometimes to get federal policy and particularly federal payment policy to recognize that because they want to put everything down to the last little descriptor in, you know, in, inside of a code that you identify and that you list. Um, our, our listeners know that very, very, very well. Um, you know, the general public may not always understand that, but, and that coding is how you get paid and that coding then begins to start to really stand in place of the individual patient, which is something I think we need to really push back on as much as we can. Uh, and I think what you're talking about is going across that line in terms of diabetic kidney disease and those other factors that are really taking us to the numbers that we're seeing in terms of kidney disease. Um, I think those are really important factors. And I think while we support these models, I think we constantly need to be vigilant with, with policymakers that that there has got to be a much more comprehensive look at this 
in order to be successful. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because if the KCF is nephrologist-centric, then it allows the nephrologist really to coordinate that care. And in theory, that really changes the relationship that the individual nephrologist has with with the, his or her patients. Um, so I'm sort of curious as to, as you've thought through this, how you think that relationship is going to change over time. I think that uh, I, I think this goes across both models. I think that there is going to need for these to be successful. Not only are nephrologists going to have to really do what I think most of them would love to do, which is to have a much more comprehensive role in care, um, looking across different lines for patients. But it, it's also to be successful. It's really going to require a lot more um, dialogue with patients and patients are going to have to really think through this as opposed to a system that I think we have come to rely upon, or, or at least some of our members tell us that, that it has come to rely upon, that really just stands in, in sharp contrast to really the most healthy option, which is, and this is nothing against dialysis facilities. They do wonderful work and they save people's lives every day. Um, but that the system gets set up in such a way that the choice really becomes a lot easier. You just, you know, you have some place to go or the nephrologist knows that they have some place to send you. Um, and doing these, taking these steps earlier and trying to really figure out how to keep that from becoming the absolute default, um, it's going to require more work and more, more interaction between the patient and their doctor. So we've talked a lot about one of the four models in the kidney care choices. Why don't we shift gears, and that's the voluntary model. Why don't we shift gears and focus on the ETC, the ERSRD treatment choices, the mandatory model? How is it structured? Well, the way in which it's structured is, is, is actually on some levels fairly simple. Um, they did take a randomization between what we call hospital referral regions, um, which had never been used quite like this. So that's something we'll have to see how it works. Um, and they, they decided to randomize. 30% of the hospital referral regions in the United States in such a way as to capture approximately 30% of the adult Medicare beneficiaries is what they would say, or Medicare patients, as we would say, um, who are currently, you know, recognized by the government as having ESRD or kidney failure. So that's what they did. They, they're pulling those together. And, and you're going to be basically within that, you're going to have Inside that hospital referral region, all the nephrologists who belong to one uh, practice, you know, organized under a tax identification number, all of those nephrologists will be included. And the facilities, the dialysis facilities within that hospital referral region, all of them that, I mean, the, the, all the facilities that are captured will be captured and they will be sorted out. So, for example, all those, you know, belonging to one company or one nonprofit. Um, will all be put together so that you can kind of compare their rates across everything that they're doing as opposed to just one facility, which ASN very much objected to. Um, and you're going to be basically judged on a couple things. And I shouldn't say judge. You're going to, your payments can be rated on a couple things. And one of it's going to be the rate of, of uh, home dialysis that occurs. And it's going to be compared to other regions in the country uh, so that there's a, a, a comparison base. And also it's going to be compared against what you had in the past within that practice or within that facility. 
or within that group of facilities. Um, then you're going to also be you know, rated on not only the amount of home dialysis that you have, but uh, we did argue, ASN, for them to include self-dialysis as a step forward uh, moving towards home dialysis. They they are doing that. They're doing it at a 50% credit rate, so it won't get 100% credit as it does with home dialysis, but it get 50%. And then they will also, uh, and these, these, these metrics will apply to both the practices and to the facilities. And then you're going to basically have a combined transplant rate, which is going to be those people who are waitlisted for deceased donation and those people who are actually transplanted by live donation, um, so living donors. And so that's, we had argued ASN that we really thought it should be just the whole transplant rate. However, some of the, some of the measures on organ procurement uh, organization metrics and transplant center designs have not happened just yet. So they felt like they couldn't go completely that far at this point. But I think they've left the door open and indicated that at some future date, they may, through rulemaking, go in that direction. Does that give you some idea? Yeah, it's really interesting because I know this is an oversimplification, but as I think about the voluntary model, it sounds very focused on this need to raise awareness, screen, identify people, then slow the progression of kidney disease, where the mandatory model, and both of these are obviously trying to improve current treatment options, but the mandatory model seems much more focused on sort of the later stages of kidney disease into kidney failure and, and trying to increase both the use of home modalities for dialysis, but also the access to transplantation. And, and there's probably a separate podcast discussion around in rethinking the other policy issues related to transplantation, if that's the what you mentioned in terms of the organ procurement organizations or the Living Donor Protection Act or the suppressive drug coverage, there's just a lot of other issues there. So I'm just curious, is that a reasonable way to kind of think about the mandatory model versus the voluntary model or how they kind of fit together? It is. It, it, it really is. And um, I, I think there's some pragmatism in that, which is basically saying we we don't want this to be a system that's focused only on really the the ultimate result of kidney failure when it's left unchecked. Um, but we still have a system in which there are many, many, many hundreds of thousands of Americans who are in this category. So trying to give them more choices, including home dialysis, which has been proven in many areas um, to really be something that can provide much better outcomes for some, not all patients, but for some, uh, much better outcomes and allow them a much higher quality of life um, and then also more transplant. So that's, I think, probably uh, a really good way of, of, of looking at it. One is, is there at that stage, and the other one is saying, let's start to rearrange the whole board and not have us get to that stage as often as we do. Um, I do also like to say that the ETC is, I always compared it, it's, it's where a lot of the sticks are and a lot of the carrots are over in the kidney care choices model. So. If you're going to do a stick and carrot approach, I think that's why a lot of people went into the voluntary models with the idea that they might be, um, you know, randomized into the ETC and that they would get more benefit if they had that offsetting what was happening in ETC. I want to just have an aside here because as we're having this conversation and as all this is happening, there's also the possibility that 
the Supreme Court may overturn the Affordable Care Act. And if it does, CMMI, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, are grew out of the ACA. What happens with the, these models if CMMI, if, if the law is overturned and then the CMMI is, is dismantled? That, that is one of the most kind of fascinating dynamics. Um, so you, you create CMMI under the Affordable Care Act. And, and the Democrats thought, and this is, I mean, I've got to go into the politics of it because it's just, it's a reality. The Democrats thought, well, okay, this is a really cool way to, to come up with innovation and test it within the system. And there were a lot of Republicans who were very, very skeptical of that. So, uh, some years later, Republicans, uh, take over and they create, um, the PTAC. So you come along and you create PTAC and, and PTAC is basically, uh, the physician focused payment model technical advisory committee. And it, it, it's, that's a, that is a mouthful. Um, and that actually was created by Republicans after they took back over partial control of the Congress. Um, and they basically felt like that should offset CMMI, um, because of the fact that, uh, this was going to be only physician led models were going to be considered through the PTAC. And the PTAC would make recommendations to the secretary, and then the secretary would send them over to CMMI for further work. So, so there you had this dynamic set up. However, then the Trump administration takes over, and pretty much everything the, the PTAC has recommended in the last couple of years has been dismissed by the Republican administration as not being bold enough, as not going out there enough. And then a Republican administration, being this one, has turned around and taken CMMI and through the creation of these two models, have done some really a very aggressive policy making or policy testing uh, within CMMI. So you're right. You could end up losing it. And yet the strange part is I think the Republican administration has is really, truly using it in a way that's even much more aggressive than it had before in the past. Now. In fairness, the Obama administration didn't get a chance to do it for that long. But um, it is really an interesting conundrum because, you know, there's a lot of things about repealing um, the Affordable Care Act in whole that are going to leave people shaking their heads going, well, what are we going to do? You just totally, it's you know, you went out to prune the rose bush and instead of pruning it, you got a hold of a shovel and a hoe and you dug the whole darn thing up and now it's over you know, in a trash pile. So, David, just to put you on the spot, let's say tomorrow an artificial kidney is invented. What are the payment implications? <laughs> that is, is really interesting. And this is the one that we talk about. And I say we, I mean in policy and to the listeners out there who really engage in policy and, and like to serve on the committees and so forth. This is really interesting because we are trying to start this dialogue. Well, not start. We're trying to really build this dialogue to be more robust. Um, to say to the government and, and federal policies, if we get to an artificial kidney, it cannot be a part of the structure that you have created. It will not work. In other words, an artificial kidney cannot be stick factored into the bundle. The bundle is designed to control the cost of dialysis. Um, 
And, and that would be absolutely the wrong way to approach it, uh, for an artificial kidney. It needs to have complete kind of like standalone payment issues. And we have more federal payment policy in kidney care than most any other groups in, in healthcare. There's others that have a lot, but, uh, kidney has a great deal. And we're making the argument very consistently now. We are saying, look, you've got to be prepared. This cannot be just an add-on, like, oh, we're going to add a bump over here in the corner to take care of the artificial kidney. No, the artificial kidney is something extremely important, and it needs to be done in such a way that will really encourage inventors and innovators and and those people in healthcare who pay for these types of things to bring them forward to really feel like it's worth it for themselves. That observation raises so many questions, but unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to revisit this issue in the future. Um, I should have said when we were talking about Robert Altman films that my favorite of his movies is The Player. And David, when it comes to Inside the Beltway, you're definitely the player. So thank you for um, enlightening us today. Thank you. I'm honored to be referenced in the Robert Altman film. Thank you very much.